once again. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your perfect Word. We thank You for preserving this Word, Lord, passed down generation after generation. Lord, thank You for the unprecedented access that we have to Your Word. For so long, Lord, people did not have a personal copy. And God, I know I've got six or seven sitting on my shelf in my office. And I'm just so grateful that You've gifted us with Your Word. We come to this portion of our worship service, Father, and we desire for You to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we, we long for You to move through the reading, through the teaching, through the proclamation of Your perfect and holy Word. So, God, in spite of an insufficient servant, an insufficient messenger, would You deliver to us Your message anyway? God, we, we long to hear from You this morning. Father, many of us need encouragement. Many of us need strengthening and comfort. Lord, many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we need to be challenged. We need to be convicted. And Father, the most amazing thing is that all of this is possible through your word. And so we ask that you would move in these ways now and that you would teach us and that through this time we would grow closer to you and grow stronger in our faith. We ask all these things In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, feel free to borrow one from the back of the pew there in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, you can take one of those from the back of the pew in front of you and keep it as our gift to you. But whether you're accessing the Word of the Lord in a digital format or a print format, we are going to either turn or scroll to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. So you're going to go to the back portion of your Bible. You're going to hit the New Testament, go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you get to Acts and Romans. Then you get to remember the General Electric Power Cooperative, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then as John Wallace taught me, you go through all the T's. You just, you get to all these letters that start with T. You got 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Then you got the Timothys. Then you got Titus. So we're going to stop once we hit 2 Thessalonians. It's just three chapters long, so if you turn pages too quick, you might brush right past it. But once you find your place in the sacred place of God's Word, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's Holy Word. As we look together at 2 Thessalonians, we're going to look at the first chapter. I'll read the entire chapter. It's only 12 verses. And so I'll read these 12 verses for us. When I've completed, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look together now at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The word of the Lord says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always, to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring." This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God 
for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We approach Second Thessalonians, and you may remember, you may not, but about this same time last year, right in this season, we walked through First Thessalonians and studied the first letter that Paul writes to the church of God of the Thessalonians. And so this second letter begins in an almost identical way to 1 Thessalonians. So what historians and scholars have inferenced from that is more than likely 2 Thessalonians is written very shortly after 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and he has Silvanus and Timothy there to help him. And if you turn back a page or so and look at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, it, it is almost formulaic. It's almost carbon copy, the same greeting, the same start, and it's the same three people involved in both letters. So what happens is Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and deals with all of those issues about the return of the Lord and talks about all these great things. And even from the very beginning of the spread of the gospel, there have always been people There have always been those who try to sow discord and division and confusion among God's people. And so even though Paul writes a very clear and very concise letter in 1 Thessalonians, he gets a very quick report back from the church, from the Thessalonians, that things are not very good. So he immediately sets to pinning another letter, and it's a three-chapter, very brief letter. And that's what we'll be looking at. You've got three chapters and and really three topics in each of those chapters. You've got chapter one, which we just read. He's got all of this encouragement in the midst of persecution. Then we'll move on to chapter two next week, and he's going to spend a lot of time talking about the day of the Lord. They're confused about the day of the Lord. So I also want to remind us, and, and we'll probably touch on this again next week, but this disinformation that we experience today the, the world that we live in today where you can't trust anything you read on social media, where they've figured out how to make actors and actresses say things they've never said, even after they have passed away, they can appear in movies where they look 20 years younger than when they passed away. The technology is out there to where when you see a video, you have no idea whether it's real or whether it's fake because the fakes are such high quality. 
And, and we may think that because of the internet, this is a new thing in human history. People confusing the truth and, and making fake videos and making people say things they didn't say. But I want to rest, I want you to rest assured, this has been happening since the beginning. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and immediately false believers come in and try and trick the Thessalonians and twist Paul's words to say things that he doesn't mean. To say that his letter is communicating something that it is not communicating. They even write fake letters and pretend to be Paul and spread those letters among the church. So if we think that disinformation and these campaigns to trick us into believing something that's not true are new, there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes would tell us. So Paul has to write this letter to clarify, to let folks know, hey, this is me, this is what I mean. So he says, endure through persecution. Here's what the day of the Lord really will look like. And then he gives an admonition to the idol. And so those are the three chapters, and that's what we'll be doing the next three weeks as we work our way towards Easter. So I want you to take a look at, after verses 1 and 2, pick up with me there in verse 3. This is Paul, this is Silvanus, this is Timothy, same three, to the church, all the great greetings. But after the formal greeting, I want you to notice in the New Testament, in the Greek, in the oldest and earliest and, and most reliable manuscripts we have, and in every copy of them that I'm aware of, Verses 3 through 10 are one sentence. One sentence. Now, I know that sometimes you guys may think I get a little bit wordy up here, but I don't hold a candle to the Apostle Paul. This man starts in verse 3 and does not put a period anywhere until verse 10. So all the translators have to figure out, okay, when's the idea kind of flow from one place to another. I don't think Paul ever had like an English professor to tell him, hey, this is what a run-on sentence looks like. You, you can't just keep throwing commas in there and keep writing. At some point, you need punctuation. You, you got to keep moving. That's why when we started reading, you, you pick up in verse 3, and we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Well, that seems like one complete thought, so they created a period, a, a sentence out of that. But in the Greek, it just keeps flowing with those interjections. Verse 3 is the perfect example. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, what, what brothers, for you brothers, you know, as, well, as is right, because that's, that's the right thing to do. And we do that because of your faith and because how your faith is growing abundantly and your love is growing. And, and it's not just one of you. It's every one of you. And it's not just your love for everybody. It's your love for one another. Does anybody else ever sit down and write that way? And then you take just a moment to go back and edit and realize, wow, I got pretty redundant there. That got kind of crazy. But Paul means every word of this. And He's so ecstatic about their faith and about their love and about their steadfastness because of all the churches, Thessalon the, Thessalonica, the Thessalonians in Thessalonica. Whew, tough to get through that. The Thessalonians are experiencing huge persecution. Not only are they facing all of this disinformation, but people are losing their jobs. People are losing their lives. This is a new religion cropping up, and this is the theme that we see over and over and over again in the New Testament, is that as a new church, as a new religion, so to speak, is growing, everybody hates it. 
all the Jews hate it because it's a transformation of what Judaism is supposed to be to them. All the Greeks hate it because it's monotheistic. What's this one God? Every different sect absolutely hates Christianity as it is beginning and taking off and trying to take root. It's new. And I know today the newest is the latest and greatest. Whatever is new is better. We have to get the iPhone 14 because it's the newest phone. Therefore, it must be better than the iPhone 13. I just want to share something with you guys, okay? That sometimes is just a marketing ploy, all right? I just want to share with you the latest, newest gadget is not always better. But that's how we believe, right? What's the latest thing that they've said on it? Mindset was completely opposite to that in the day of the Thessalonians. When Paul is writing this letter, people hated new ideas. Do you know why? They weren't tested. They weren't tried and true. I'm the kind of guy that fits in with that culture because they release these new updates, right, for your operating system, for your computer. They release these new updates for your phone. And your phone even tries to tell you, hey, just punch in your code and we'll update your phone over the night. And you'll notice, I I don't typically like to update my phone right when they let it out. Uh, There's that group of people that maybe you're a part of them. Ooh, it's a new update. I got to download it. I got to try it. And you get to have all of the flaws and the errors, right? It's kind of like with the birth order in children. How many, how many first children we got in here? Oldest children. You, you, just humor me. Raise your hand. Right on. God bless you. Y'all were guinea pigs. I, I just, I hate it for you. But your parents were too young when they had you. They, they didn't know what was going on. They're trying to figure life out. Me, I'm the baby of the family. By the time I came around, my parents were too old to even care. So the middle child gets forgotten. The first child is the baby of the, is the, the guinea pig. And then the baby is the one where they just get away with anything. The tried and true tested parenting tactics are usually figured out as you have more kids. But who did they try them out on? The first child. Same thing is true with new updates to any software. Let somebody else download it, figure out the bugs, and, and then I'll download it. The, the same thing was true here. If something new crops up, I don't trust it. I don't like it. It hasn't been tested. They trusted Judaism because Judaism had been around for thousands of years. But now this new Jesus fellow, this new Christian idea, this new grace that you're talking about, and you don't have to follow laws, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to trust that He was the sacrifice to cover our sin. That's strange and abnormal to everyone that hears it. And so the Thessalonians are under extreme persecution. And and I want you to think about the normal struggles that we have in life and add the persecution on top of that. I mean, I was listening in the deacons meeting this morning. We got guys who are struggling to get vehicles fixed. We got guys whose parents are sick and they're trying to take care of their kids and their parents all at the same time. We got people all over this church that are fighting cancer, that are fighting heart disease, that have surgeries coming up. We got people with diseases I can't even understand or spell and they're like German and it's supposed to have two dots over the O, the little umlaut. I I don't even know about this. All of these same things are happening in Thessalonica. When we think about persecution, we typically go to this protected category where life wasn't really hard for them except that they were being persecuted. That's not true. All the stresses of life still applied to them. Only their stresses were like, hmm, will we have food today? 
The food security that we have today is unheard of historically. They had all the regular stresses of life on top of people trying to kill them or blackball them out of their guild, out of their union, so that they had nowhere to work, no form of income, and no way to provide for their family. Their lands were being repossessed. Nobody would let them farm. Nobody would give them food. Nobody would barter with them. In the midst of all of that, do you think that you could hold on to your faith? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I struggle in life, it causes me to have doubts. Does that happen to any of you? You don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to answer in your heart. When life gets tough, does that draw you closer to Jesus and make you think, Whoo, man, Jesus, you are so good. I am so glad that my faith is true and real. Or when life gets hard, do we immediately turn to that? Why me, Jesus? Are you really even there? Do you even hear me? How could you allow this to be happening in my life? If you're real, then do something about this. The Thessalonians had all the stresses of life, plus all the persecution that you and I have have never known. We've never experienced persecution like what these guys went through. And yet Paul says he is proud of their love and their steadfastness. He says that he boasts about the Thessalonians. When he's talking to other churches, when he's writing other letters, look there in verse 4. We ourselves, that's Timothy and Silvanus and Paul, as they're communicating to other churches, they boast about the Thessalonians for their steadfastness and faith in the face of all the persecutions and all the afflictions that they're enduring. Folks, I just wonder, could Paul boast about Bethany? Could Paul boast about our steadfastness, our faith, in the face of what this world throws at us? Could could Paul boast about how our love for one another is constantly increasing? Could Paul write to other churches and speak of Bethany Baptist and he could say, your faith is growing abundantly? Or would he have to say something else about those of us here at Bethany? What would be our description? What if he was writing a letter about you personally? Do you think that Paul could brag about your steadfastness? About your endurance through affliction? Personally, so often I feel like if Paul were to write a letter about me, he'd probably write a letter about how whiny this kid is. He'd probably write a letter about how spoiled and entitled these believers are. I can't believe that Nathan expects as much as he does from God, and he's not more grateful for the things that God's providing him. He doesn't face anywhere near the afflictions or persecutions, and yet he still finds ways to doubt that God's at work in his life. If that was the letter that Paul was writing about you, I wonder what it would say for you. How would Paul speak of your steadfastness? And he reminds them, you've been steadfast, hold on. Because even when your cars are breaking down, there's not enough money to make it to the end of the month. Even when there's diagnoses that you don't understand and I don't understand. Even when there's diseases and hospital visits. Even when our loved ones pass away. Even when our marriages are falling apart. Even when our kids are running off as prodigals into the wilderness. And they're choosing to eat the pig pods instead of coming back home where there's grace and mercy and love ready for them. And we're hoping and praying that God will do something in our lives. Paul gives us hope. 
He says, hang in there, and here's why. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. When we are faithful in the midst of the trial, we are considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's what we're suffering for, to be worthy of the kingdom of God. Since God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Man, God is fair. There is forgiveness of sins, but our God is a God who grants relief by afflicting those who have afflicted us. Granting relief to those who are afflicted, as well as to Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Then he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There is coming a day when what Paul writes in Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, as he quotes, that Jesus will show up. And he won't be a little baby in a manger. He won't be innocent and sweet and mild and meek and subdued. He will show up and inflict vengeance on those who have afflicted his children, on those who have opposed the gospel, on those who have refused to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Verse 9 is so powerful. This is the punishment that you and I deserve. This is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus should come back and each and every one of us should suffer a punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There is nothing worse in all of existence than being thrown from the presence of the goodness of God. From God turning the face of His glory away from us. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross. As He hung there, dying slowly, taking on all the sin of all the world, the Father turned His presence, His goodness, His face from Jesus. And for the only time in all of human history, they were separated from one another. Jesus experienced the torture of hell for each and every one of us. He experienced what it was like for having the presence of God to turn away from Him. And people like to look at this verse and they like to say, well, it's a destruction. It's over. That's it, right? That what happens after death, when the day of judgment comes, is that there are those who get to go be with Jesus and then those who are just destroyed. And, And that's all there is to it. I want us to understand when it says eternal destruction, that's not implying a one time you cease to exist. It is destruction on an eternal, never-ending scale. Jesus clarifies this for us in the Gospel of Matthew. So turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 25, and we're just going to we're going to skip down to verse 45. He's He's telling a parable about the separation of the, the sheep and the goats. He's talking about those who are, have taken care of him when he's hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison. And he's speaking to those who did not take care of him. And in verse 45, he says, Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly, Matthew twenty-five forty-five. 
Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then in verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God does not desire that any should perish. It's what Peter will tell us in the New Testament. God made a way for us to have life. God loves us so much that He sent His one and only Son to die on a cross to bear the burden of our sin that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. Jesus is saying right here that the righteous, those who are counted righteous by Christ's righteousness, those who have trusted in Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus now covers them will have eternal life. That is the love of God. That is what He wants for us. But on the day of judgment, there will be those who have rejected the gospel, who have rejected this hope, who have turned away from the goodness of God, and who have chosen to be their own God, and who have chosen to do things on their own in their own way. And for them, there is eternal punishment waiting. There is eternal destruction waiting. Just one more passage. Turn with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, I want you to look at verse 11. Revelation chapter 14 in verse 11. This is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Because it brings into clarity what happens to those who refuse God's love. This is not a fairy tale. This is not made up. This is not some fantasy writing. This is factual. This is what will happen on the day of judgment. Take that to heart as we read this. God does not want this destiny for you. He does not want this destiny for anyone. But those who reject Him and reject His gospel... The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The smoke never stops because the fire never stops. The burning never stops. I don't want anybody to experience this. And I'm not trying to scare anyone. Because God does love us and doesn't want this for us. But this is a valid reality. And Paul is so proud of the Thessalonians because even in the face of affliction, they won't take the proverbial mark of the beast in their day. They won't deny Christ so that they could feed their family. They won't deny Christ so that they could have a job. They won't deny Christ to get out of being killed and slaughtered. They are choosing Jesus and they are receiving eternal life. Even in the face of the worst persecution and the worst trials and the worst suffering that this world can throw at us, nothing is worse than the torment that awaits those who reject the love of God. Nothing is worse than eternal smoke rising up from the fires that continuously consume. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Somehow there is fire and there's darkness. It's an outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and yet fire and smoke that goes up forever and ever. 
Don't let that be what happens to you. That there is a day of judgment coming. And Paul reminds the Thessalonians of that as hope. If you trust in Jesus this morning, the day of the Lord is a good thing for us. The day of the Lord is something beyond what we can describe. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, the day of the Lord is the most terrifying and absolutely petrifying day in all of human existence. Because thus begins the true punishment. The eternal punishment. The eternal destruction. So that's why at the end of chapter 1 in Thessalonians, Paul finishes each chapter he's going to summarize with a prayer And so he prays this prayer over the Thessalonians as they're in the midst of this hurt, as they're in the midst of this persecution. Verse 11, he says, to this end, we always pray for you. This is the prayer. God may make you worthy of his calling. Remember, he said that you are worthy of his kingdom. The life that you live is worthy of his kingdom. His prayer for the Thessalonians is that they would remain steadfast through all the ups, through all the downs, and that they would be worthy of His calling. That God would fulfill every resolve for good that is in their heart. And that every work of faith would be done by God's power. He concludes his prayer in verse 12 and says, The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. That is his prayer for the Thessalonians. And I wonder, how many of us this morning, Myself included. How many of us pray that prayer over our own lives? How many of us sit down at night and and we pray, God, protect us. God, watch over us. God, keep us safe. God, heal us. God, do for us. God, do for us. How many of us sit down and say, God, may you make me worthy of your calling. God, may you fulfill every resolve for good in my heart. God, would you make every good work of faith happen by your power in my life? God, would the name of the Lord Jesus be glorified in me and in my life? That's Paul's prayer over the Thessalonians. And I just wonder, for those of us who already know the Lord, and we know that the day of the Lord is coming, and it's our hope that we look forward to, but in the meantime, do we pray and ask God that Jesus may be glorified in us? When you start off the day, do you ask the Lord, Lord, help me to have a good day today. Please let my coworkers be nice. Don't make it stressful today. Or do you say, God, come what may, no matter how hard this day is, no matter how easy this day is, no matter how healthy or unhealthy my family is, no matter how wealthy or how poor we are right now, Lord, would you be glorified in me? Is that your prayer? If you are here this morning and you you don't follow Jesus, please don't leave this place today knowing that someday that eternal punishment, that eternal torment is your fate. None of us that love Jesus want that for you today. Trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Call upon His name. Believe in your heart. Follow Him and you will be saved. And that torment will never be something that you experience. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us and that there is hope in you. We thank you, God, that we don't have to experience eternal punishment. We don't have to experience eternal destruction. Lord, we thank you that in you there is life. 
and life abundant and full. Father, help us to be the kind of believers that the Thessalonians proved to be. Help us to be people of endurance, people of steadfast, unmoving faith. Help us, Lord, to be bold enough to pray the same prayer that Paul prayed over the Thessalonians, over our own family, over our friends, over our church, over ourselves. Lord, may you be glorified in us. May you make us steadfast. May you fulfill every good work of faith through us by your power. Strengthen our resolve, Father, that we might live for you in the face of affliction, in the face of persecution, through the good times and the bad. Help us to follow hard after you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that as we're praying, they're hearing my voice and they don't know you, Would you change their heart? God, would you draw them unto yourself that when we offer a time to respond here in a few moments, would you move upon them that they might come forward and say, I want to follow Jesus. God, we ask for you to take this time and use it as you see fit. We ask all this in your precious name, Lord Jesus.